After this, I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen, and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple. Um, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief, Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth, so tremendous was the quake. The great cities split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstorms of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. We're definitely into Revelation this morning after that reading. Um, let's pray with the other sense of Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at this part of the word, uh, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Please help us to see clearly what we need to understand about your wrath. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry about that. 
As a parent, I reckon that I like teachers who are strict and firm, but also who are consistent and caring. I reckon that's the best thing for your kids, because then they know where they stand. They know exactly where they stand. They know what's expected of them. Good work and good behaviour, what gets rewarded? Bad work and bad behaviour will get addressed. And I actually think that kids like strict teachers, because they know where they stand in the class. There's nothing worse than not knowing where you stand in, with the rules. If you've got a soft teacher, then the rat bags get away with all sorts of stuff at the expense of the responsible and the cooperative students. It's always the way. Or you might put all your effort into finishing your assignment so it's done on time, and then the teacher moves to do that back. And so there's no reward for that sacrifice and that hard work. I think it's worse, though, when a teacher shows uh, has favourites. I think that's the worst thing for the kids. Some of the things can be said outside the classroom as we live our life. We want justice. We want things to be equitable. We want fairness. We want effort to go rewarded and not unnoticed. We want authorities who maintain order and are equitable in the way they do that. And for authorities and governments to do that, they need to know how to punish. They need to be strict and firm and consistent and bring justice. For some reason, though, it feels like when it comes to God, people throw all that out the window. They expect God to be, you know, to turn a blind eye on injustice. They expect God to allow things to go unpunished. God must be loving and accept everyone. To many people, I think the idea of God being angry, the idea of God's wrath, it's not something that sits comfortably with them. But when you think about it, a God who doesn't get angry is a God who doesn't really care about justice or injustice. Revelation chapter 16 shows us an apocalyptic vision of God, a God who is just, a God who knows how to punish and how to punish fairly. This is a vision of God unleashing righteous wrath on injustices. And as we read John's written account of this vision that he saw on Patmos and was told to write it down, as we read it, we see, point one in the sermon outline, we see God's wrath is real and we see it's reasonable. Um, today's scene, it's loaded with Old Testament Exodus language. As you read it, you've got Exodus in the background. Um, there was an escape that was made possible through God's judgment, waves of God's judgment that came on Pharaoh, meaning that God's people could um, be released from slavery. Let's do that the flyover of this passage, though, and we'll come back to the Exodus language that's here. This is the shortest passage so far that we've looked at in Revelation, and that's partly because it is a scene, it is a unit. And so that the scene changes that we met last week, you've got one scene changer in verse 5 of chapter 15, the open door, and then you've got another scene changer down in 17 verse 1, this invitation to come. So what we're looking at is another scene in Revelation. Everything between 15 verse 5 and 17 verse 1 is a single scene in this vision. A scene where you see the characters that have already been introduced reappearing, showing their faces again. Looking across this scene, in 15 verse 6 there's seven angels. Presumably they're the same angels that sounded the seven trumpets back in chapters 8 to 11. In 15 verse 7, there's one of the four living creatures. We've met the living creatures around God's throne in heaven. They were back there in chapter 4. And this living creature gives seven, the seven angels 
Seven bowls full of the wrath of God. And then through the chapter, uh, chapter 16, the angels, they pour out these bowls of God's wrath. Um, the first bowl is poured out on the land, in verse 2 of chapter 16, or the earth. The second bowl gets poured out on the sea, in verse 3. Um, the third bowl gets poured out on the rivers and the springs, in verse 4. The fourth bowl gets poured out on the sun, in verse 8. And the fifth bowl, in verse 10, gets poured out on the throne of the beast. The beast that we met in chapter 12, or chapter 13, rather. The beast who serves the dragon, serves Satan. The beast who is like a ruler who represents Satan and, um, and brings glory to Satan. Um, the sixth bowl gets poured out on, over the river Euphrates in 16 verse 12. And then in verse 13, yes, there's the dragon again from chapter 12. The, rep- the representation of Satan in apocalyptic imagery. Um, and the beast again. And then you've got the false prophet there. And I think that would be the second beast. The beast that comes from the land back in chapter 13. Um, just joining the dots, that seemed to make sense. Finally, the seventh bowl of God's wrath is poured out in 16 verse 17 into the air. And a loud voice from the throne says, it's done, it's finished, it's complete, it's all over. The seven waves of God's wrath, all these sevens in Revelation, this, this number of completeness, this is God's complete wrath poured out. Um, John's vision, which Jesus gave him, to write down and send to Christians in churches across what we would think of as Turkey. John's vision shows God thoroughly judging, thoroughly exposing his wrath. Glance back, though, at 16 verse 5. Um, Look what happens when the third bowl is poured out. Verse 5 of chapter 16. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who... Uh, um, you who are and who were. For they have, they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. It's like an observation that as God, God's wrath is poured out like this, it's appropriate. The people who are being punished for being judged are the ones who have persecuted the followers of God and his prophets. And then verse 7, And I heard the altar respond. The altar back in chapters 4 and 5, presumably somewhere in there, or is it in the tabernacle? It's kind of, how does this vision work? It's one of those puzzles, but the altar speaks, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God's wrath is righteous wrath. Verse 6, it's righting the wrong that's been done to God's people and God's prophets. When you think about it, um, when a perpetrator of injustice is punished, there is a pos- it is a positive thing to the victims and those associated with the victims, isn't it? To see justice brought. There's a closure, there's all that sort of... It's a good thing to see justice. And here this justice uh, for God's people is brought and for God's prophets. And as God brings this justice, God's proved to be right and to be true. God does care about wrong. God does care about injustice. God knows how to judge, and he knows how to do it in a way that is fair and proper and fitting. As we read this vision of Revelation, this letter that John recorded, we need to remember who the original writer is and who the original recipients are. And I think before you get into all the the vision language, back in chapter 1, verse 9, there's a very clear reminder of who's writing and to whom. John writes to his companions in the suffering and in the kingdom 
and in the patient endurance that arousing Jesus. It's John writing to Christians, saying, hang on in there, keep persevering, keep trusting. He writes to the churches described in vision-type language in chapters 2 and 3. Christians who are undergoing persecution, or soon will go and undergo persecution. And with some who are wandering from the faith and having to deal with false teaching and all these things are happening. This part of the vision shows God will right all wrongs. God will bring justice. He'll bring punishment on those who've shed the blood of Christians and, and his prophets. So point one in the sermon outline, God's wrath, it's real and it's reasonable. Point two, the saints in Revelation, they're not chronological, but they are connected. They do build. So we've done the flyover of the passage, but where does this scene in Revelation fit into the rest of it? We've already said that the scenes, they're not chronologically sequential. It's not like um, reading the Gospels one after the other. The, the Gospels are different views, different angles, different um, accounts. It's the same in Revelation. These scenes are different camera angles, different layers, describing the same period of time, describing the overlap of the ages, the time between Jesus coming and Jesus returning, the time we live in as Christians, describing that period of time and what will happen when Jesus does return, what we have to look forward to. So we've said time and time again um, that these scenes are like camera angles. And after each camera angle is shown, you see the whole picture clearer and richer. The layers make more sense. It's building, it's being added to. Um, These scenes share the same characters, the same cast, and the cast grows. And the characters keep reappearing. Um, This is apocalyptic vision. It's it's arty type stuff. It's... It's a vision that John has been told to record and send to Christians. We've seen the seven angels who stand on the seven trumpets. Here they are again with the bowls of God's wrath. We've seen the living creature around, before living creatures around God's throne. Here's another one involved again. We've seen the dragon, the beast, and the false prophets. There's more connections, though, as you look across um, this scene. There's, there's seven bowls, just like there were seven seals, just like there were seven trumpets, and seven sights. But there's even more connections. If you have a look across, you've got, um, if you have a look at the trumpets, for example, compared to these bowls of God's wrath, there's all these connections, the first four in particular. So in the first uh, trumpet, when it sounded, a third of the earth, or a third of the land, is burnt up when the first bowl of wrath gets poured out. It's poured out onto the land. When the second trumpet sounded, there's a third of the creatures in the sea that die. When um, the second bowl of God's wrath is poured out, it's poured out on the sea, and this time... Every living creature dies, not just a third. Um, the, the third trumpet, when it was sounded, a third of the rivers and the springs were affected. Um, the third bowl of wrath is poured out on the rivers and the springs as well. The fourth trumpet, when it was sounded, the sun was struck. The, what, the fourth bowl, yeah, it's poured out on the sun. As you go deeper into it, breakings comes up as well. There's these connections. Both the trumpets and the bowls show God's judgment being brought on a world that we live in a world that we can recognise as we read this. But there's an emphasis in the bowls on the completeness, the thoroughness of God's judgement. So with the trumpets, it's a third. It's partial. It's almost like um, causing people to want to repent, maybe, like a warning. But now it's showing the completeness of God's punishment. There's another emphasis of the completeness of God's judgement. So if you look ahead um, in chapter 16 of verse 17... When the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple, there's a loud voice from the throne saying, it's done. It's, there's nothing more to do. It's finished. There's this completeness being emphasised. 
Or verse 18, then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. It's like, this is, final, this is the biggest thing we'll ever get. But then there's another thing happening. So go back to this refrain that echoes through Revelation. So you see it in chapter 4, verse 5. Back in 4, verse 5, um, when it's describing the throne of God, you hear this frame introduced. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Then, as you come to the end um, of the seventh, when the seventh seal is opened in chapter 8, you hear, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then, after the seven trumpets, as you begin to see the seven sights, as they're introduced in 11 verse 19, partway through the verse, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. And then after the seventh bowl of God's wrath, you've got all this. And it's kind of pumped up even further. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. This scene in Revelation, yeah, they're not chronological, but they are logically connected. And one of the commentators points that out and says, maybe it's like this. You've got the seven seals being opened and you see God's wrath being allowed to come across the earth by God allowing rulers to be unjust, to allow this world to be the mess it's in. It's like describing a fallen world we live in. The seven trumpets are, are sounded and you see God judging partially as if to warn and then the seven bowls are poured out and you, you see God's complete judgment. Three different camera angles describing the world that we live in, describing God's wrath in different ways so that we have a greater appreciation of the way in which God judges and the way he will judge when Jesus returns. As God punishes, um, he does, sorry, God punishes by allowing us to live our own way without him. It's echoes of, of Romans 1. God punishes to warn, and God knows how to punish finally and completely, and he will do that. You see, it's, they're not sequential, but they're kind of layers describing the way in which God knows how to judge. In this um, section, chapter 16, God knows how to judge righteously, thoroughly, completely. And so, point three of the sermon outline, each of these scenes of Revelation portrays the situation we now live in and what will happen when Jesus returns. This is just another angle on it and you have a richer understanding of God's sovereignty. Um, If you were one of the seven churches who got this letter, called Revelation, um, you would find, I think, reassurance in this vision. As you're undergoing a hard time, as you're being persecuted for your faith, you're being reminded, God's in control. God is the one who will bring justice. God is consistent, he's fair, he's righteous, he knows how to judge. Leave it over to him, trust him, keep living for him. So far, I've not even properly addressed uh, the most obvious thing in chapters 15 and 16, and that's, it's loaded with Exodus, the language of Exodus, the escape of God's people out of Egypt, the way God judged Pharaoh, and by judging Pharaoh, brought salvation to his people, made them his people. So come back to the beginning again, let's have another look through it. So come back to 15 verse 5, and as you come back to there, think about the events surrounding the Exodus of Israel from Egypt. So... The people of God, they were exiles. They were 
slaves in a foreign land, aliens, they didn't belong in Egypt. And they call out to God. And God hears their call and he sends Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. But the Pharaoh won't let them go. And so God sends waves of judgment on Pharaoh in the form of plagues. Um, Judgment which demonstrates God's power. Judgment which hardens Pharaoh's heart. He would not repent. And judgment which ultimately brings freedom Judgment that took the form of ten plagues. There's blood, there's flies, there's hail, there's frogs, there's death of livestock, there's locusts, there's gnats, there's boils, there's darkness, and then finally there's the death of every firstborn in every home in Egypt. Pharaoh, yeah, he finally did let God's people go. And the people, they plundered the Egyptians. As the Egyptians gave them everything of value that they had and said, get out. And after fleeing Egypt, the Israelites found themselves camped near the Red Sea. And meanwhile, Pharaoh changed his mind yet again and sent his army after them. God made a path through the sea on dry land for his people. They crossed the sea on dry land and then the army followed and God allowed the waters to close in over them. And then Exodus chapter 15 records for us the song that Moses sung after this amazing defeat of God's enemies, this judgment which brings freedom. The Exodus account, um, it's a story of God's judgment that freed his people. And then God gathers his people around Mount Sinai, gives them his covenant, his law, the way he wants them to live. He tells them to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting, a place where they can approach God. And as with all that in the background, you come back to 15, verse 5, and you start hearing the echoes of Exodus language. Only, this is an apocalyptic Exodus. And the language, yes, it echoes the past, but it also extends it and changes it around a little. So the echoes start with... Um, the end of last week's passage in 15 verse 3, it talks about the song of Moses. That's the end of the Exodus. That's the end of the crossing of the sea. And then at the beginning of today's passage, 15 verse 5, after this I looked, I saw in heaven the temple. That is the tabernacle of the covenant law and it was opened. All these echoes of Exodus. God's covenant from Mount Sinai. The tabernacle being built. Access um, to this apocalyptic tabernacle, it's barred though until God's wrath and God's judgment against sin is complete. So verse 8, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of, and the, of, of the seven angels were completed. This judgment, this exposure of God's wrath needs, the wrath needs to be complete before you can have access into this tabernacle. As each bowl of wrath is poured out, you see echoes of the plague. 16 verse 2, for example, festering sores on those who follow the beast. 16 verse 3 and 4, the sea turns to blood and the rivers and the springs turn to blood. 15 verse 9, despite this horrid judgment, there is still no evidence of repentance. Just like with Pharaoh, these people are hardened. 16 verse 10, there's darkness and there's sores mentioned again. There's just these echoes of the ten plagues of God's judgment against Egypt and Pharaoh. If you were the original recipients of this letter, Revelation, feeling like aliens, strangers in this world, um, citizens of Christ's kingdom, marked with his seal, but surrounded by those who are marked with a dragon or a beast. If that were you, then you would hear this part of Revelation as an encouragement. This is like God's promise of another exodus, an apocalyptic exodus, freedom that God will bring about as he judges his enemies. But this is an apocalyptic exodus, and so 
There's echoes from the Old Testament Exodus, but there's, it extends it too. So 16 verse 12, the Euphrates is dried up, just like the sea was dried up. It's dried up to prepare the way for kings to come. So verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Back in um, the Old Testament, God dried up the sea for Israel across, and then for the king Pharaoh and his army to attempt to cross, and they failed. But here, the Euphrates is dried up to the kings of the east. And then you read on, and the instruments of Satan or the dragon round up the kings of the whole earth for this showdown. So verse 13, Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. Maybe that's another echo of Exodus. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the demonic spirits to perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. This is a vision of all human authorities who serve Satan coming to fight God. In this vision, John hears um, a refrain next that sounds like Jesus' words, that he'll come like a thief in the night, you just don't know when. It's like it's a reminder to be ready for this final day, this final battle, um, which actually Jesus has already won. So verse 15, Look, I come like a thief, lest is the one who stands awake and remains closed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. They were gathered, and then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. It's a scary word for us because I think Hollywood and others have made it scary. But it's a compound word, it's a word for the mountain of Megiddo. And if you go back through the Old Testament, you'll see this mountain mentioned numerous times as a place of battle, a place where kings go to war. In two kings we looked at earlier in the year, it's referred to at least twice. But I wonder if it's actually um, Judges 5 that's sitting behind this, where you have the song of Deborah in Judges 5, praising God's victory over Sisera, I think it is, and the language there just sounds like what you've got here. Just think of Armageddon, though, as the place where battles are fought in the Old Testament. Um, this battle, though, this battle is not between kings. This is a battle between the rulers of the earth and God. And we know the winner. It's like there's nothing to tell you about this battle. And we don't hear anything about it. It's a, the victory is a given. And so we read um, that as the next bowl of God's wrath is poured out, we're just told it's done. No blow-by-blow blow description. But then the vision starts to open out again to this bigger, bigger picture. Verse 18, then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. I think as you read the Bible, this idea of um, God shaking things is God's judgment. Verse 19, the great city split in three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Just as um, Armageddon is the place where battles are fought, Babylon is kind of this representation of human authority. I mean, they're the, the, the nation that took Israel into exile in the Old Testament, but they're also this pers- personification of evil. And we'll see more about Babylon. It's like this character's now introduced and will recur in the coming scenes. Um, for now, what we're seeing is God's wrath. So verse... 20, every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 40 kilograms, 
fell on people and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague is so terrible. We're back to the kind of Exodus plague language again. This scene, as you look across it, it's like the rest of Revelation. It's, it's pumped up. It's the, the 3D version of the boring novel that you read. But this is just amazing and incredible. Um, the scene, though, it causes us to contemplate the wrath of God, the seriousness of the wrath of God. It frames God's wrath in terms of the exodus, in terms of judgment that brings freedom, brings salvation. And it causes us, I think, to consider the failure of many, many people to repent, even when they see God judge. But if we do repent, then we will know God's kindness. We will know God's mercy. Um, you find God's kindness and God's mercy all, all through the Bible. It's just here you're looking at God's wrath. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about repentance. This is the kind of thing which understanding God's wrath ought to motivate in us. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Yeah, other parts of the Bible will focus on God's forgiveness and his mercy. Forgiveness that comes when we repent. Forgiveness that's possible because of Jesus' death in that place. It's just this part of the Bible is focusing in on God's wrath. And as you read it, yes, there's motivation for us to repent. There's also motivation for us to know that God knows when to get angry, how to get angry, how to be right, how to be just. And that will give us confidence as well because our God does care about right and wrong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because we know that you are right, you are just, and you are good. We know you don't change. We know that you are able to judge and you know how to judge. We know that your wrath is righteous. Lord, we also know that we're not worthy to be your children. But we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death in our place. Thank you that his death brings freedom um, from sin and from its consequences. So, Father, we are sorry for ignoring you and living like you don't exist. And we ask you to please forgive us and change us to live for Jesus. Amen.